Hey everyone, this is Alex Lavage with Startup Champs, and you are listening to Renaissance Life. Hola, mi amigos. Welcome to the Renaissance Life, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of creativity, mastery, and a meaningful life. I am your podcaster in crime, Josh Wagner. Thank you for listening today and checking us out if you're new. Today's episode is a conversation with my friend Alex Lavage uh, of Startup Champs. He is an incredibly intelligent person and thinker, which you'll soon find out in a few moments. We get into a ton of stuff. We talk about starting a business, running your life like a business, building a personal brand, validating ideas. We also get into books uh, and health-related things. We talk about some good stuff here. Here's a little quick bio from his LinkedIn. Quote, over the past decade, half of my professional career has evolved around assisting hundreds of entrepreneurs and their teams. Together, we go through established sales and marketing processes that validate a product market fit so that they accelerate towards their first million in revenue. End quote. So whether or not you're you're reaching for your first million in revenue or you're just starting out, this is a fantastic episode to dive into. And it's a, it's a fun episode. We laughed, we cried, tears of joy, of course. The last thing, if you want to support the Renaissance Life, support what I'm doing here, a great free way to do that is to leave a f- review on uh, Apple Podcast, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. I'd really appreciate that. It's a great free way to support the show. Last, last thing, I just started a couple of newsletters. One is called Considerations. It's about creative input. It's a thoughtful, free monthly email of observations, insights, recommendations, interesting articles and books, that kind of stuff, other curiosities that I'm enjoying. And the other one is called Bookaholics. And it, can you guess what it's about? It is, it is a, I went full hick there. It's also a monthly newsletter focused around books. I am an avid reader, you see, so I, 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 I read quite a bit. And this is a monthly newsletter where I talk about the, the, the fiction and the nonfiction books that I'm reading and what I found useful or not so useful about them. So if you're interested in books, check that out. Both of them will be linked in the show notes as well. You can go to renaissancelife.com slash considerations or renaissancelife.com slash bookaholics and find out more information about those. Sweet. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Alex Lavage. What's the first movie that comes to your head? Matrix. Matrix? Really? Why the Matrix? Mr. Anderson. <laughs> That's really good. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. What are your feelings on the the last two of those series? Wachowski Brothers. That was shit. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> nonsense. You ruined a good thing. You didn't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're hilarious. (laughs) Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Thank you again for coming on. Of course, of course. No, I'm just happy to be here. 
and uh, a huge uh, fan of your show. Thank you. Thank you. So how do you answer the infamous question, what do you do? What do I do? Say um, you're at a party where somebody doesn't know you. Sure. Yo, yeah. You or I get it from my mother every Thanksgiving. <laughs> now, what do you do, Sonny? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Explain. Actually, that's not the first question. The first question is, she cares less about what I do and just wants to make sure I have health insurance. And then <laughs> we get into what I do. So, Do you have health insurance? So I do have health oh. insurance because uh, it's part of my company called Startup Champs, which I officially founded or incorporated, but I've been doing consulting ever since I left the company lab in April of 2016, which for anyone who doesn't know is a nonprofit organization in Chattanooga, Tennessee that has a lot of different fronts supporting the entrepreneurial community here, from groups to a variety of different initiatives, like co-starters to 48-hour launch to I was director of accelerator programs. Really, really good group of people. What I have been doing in a nutshell, to answer your question, is I help companies or startups, typically before they've even incorporated, secure revenue so that before they launch, it makes it easier to either get financing or it makes it easier to raise investment capital. What size, I want to get into startup gyms a lot, but what? just a quick question, like what size company comes to you or ideally comes to you? Great question. Uh, it's twofold. So okay. I, I actually <clears throat> prefer to be on the cutting edge of working with larger companies and corporations, many of whom have multiple profit and loss statements. I've worked with clients that are government subcontractors that have a variety of different initiatives that they're doing, and in which case their interest is saying, hey, we want to build something extra in our ecosystem so we have an additional revenue stream because in our world, the political climate is uncertain. Mm -hmm. To I had a client up in Knoxville that was a former $2 billion investment fund that divested, and then after that, they had a lot of cash, and they still had a lot of great, great people on the payroll. And they said, how can we start to build something so we can basically keep a lot of good people employed that we all really love and enjoy working with and also continue to grow and create something? So uh, so you've got those examples. And then I also have worked with individuals that are typically older, 50s and 60s. Baby boomers are the fastest growing segment of the entrepreneurial community in this country. Why and, is that? And with good reason. Well, a lot of them have a net worth of that I work with of over seven figures. Mm. They've got a couple decades worth of experience in their respective industry. And they also, because they're so knee deep in that industry, they understand that there are going to be certain problems that need to be addressed. And they're gonna launch a company because they feel, and usually rightfully so after uh, the audit shows this, that they're uniquely qualified to address that problem in a way no one else can. So. Those are the types of potential clients that I enjoy working with and that I have worked with in the past. Fantastic. Before we go down that road, I want to like backtrack a little bit and sure. talk about your entrepreneurial journey. And just starting off with, where, where did you start jumping into entrepreneurship and startup land? I attribute a lot of that to when I was, when I was growing up, I had a single mother and my half-sister. So looking around, my main male influence was my grandfather. This is a guy like so many others in what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation after World War II, just had an iron will and a ton of passion. 
and just didn't stop until the job got done. He moved to Knoxville, Tennessee, my hometown, with less than a few hundred dollars in his pocket, and between him and his partners built one of the top advertising agencies in the region back in the day. What was your grandfather's name? Art Lavage. Art Lavage. And Lavage and Associates in its heyday had, I think, close to 37 different affiliate offices in over 11 different countries around the world and was, you know, doing, you know, back in the 70s, like, you know, revenue between 30 to 50 million. And and then with that, he had a very strong entrepreneurial um, spirit where he was involved in lots of different ventures as well. And I remember just admiring as a kid, seeing that he had multiple revenue streams in his life and that he had a lot of fun along the way. Mm-hmm. And but and also living a very minimalist lifestyle along the process, comparatively similar to a lot of self made millionaires, as Thomas Stanley pointed out in the millionaire next door. You know, never really felt like he had anything to prove. But for me, sort of being on the back end looking in, I was able to see that his real passion was being able to feel like there was resources in his life so he could give back to his family and be a pillar in the community through a variety of philanthropic works, some in the foreground, some in the background, anonymously, because he just had that kind of heart. And and to me, that's that was sort of what drove my sense of love for entrepreneurship, is not so much in that, you know, hey, I feel like I want to live a big lifestyle, or I want to, I feel like I have to prove something to somebody, or or as, you know, the, the it's cynical, but it's kind of true, you know, so I can go out and buy things I don't need to impress people who don't care. <laughs> but more just that, you know, money is an enabler to be a catalyst for change. You don't want to be a Bruce Wayne? Exactly. So, or, or I guess, yeah, Bruce Wayne actually is a good example. Well, uh, you know, that's I mean, true. That's true. Yeah. Of just, if you take you both know, sides of him. <laughs> you know, little, yeah, I'm not sure what psychologically drives him, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. So, but, but anyway, I think, so to answer your question, so from there, I mean, everything from when I was 16, I launched my first classified newspaper and later, oh. and later sold that about a year and a half later to a local communications company when I lived out in Oregon, launched a magazine when I was in college, went to Iowa, launched a small property management company to then went out to Silicon Valley and had very grandiose dreams of trying to launch a platform where people could pay their rent online and improve their credit score at the same time, which fell straight on my face with that one, but then also learned being in the heart of the valley that um, similar to like watching a magician on stage, you know, everyone watches them pull the rabbit out of the hat and wonder how they did it and think that it's magic, but there's a process to all this stuff. And so out in that bay, I had a chance to do a lot of consulting projects and learn what that process looked like and got paid at the same time. Okay, wow. There's so many questions. <laughs> You're good, man. Uh, I'm going to try to keep my answers a little bit shorter. I want to I want to get into the... No, that was perfect. I want to get into the process and really dive deep into what that looks like. But first, as a like side tangent uh, with your grandfather, where do you think that will of his generation came from? You think it was the just experiencing, I'm guessing experienced the Great Depression, perhaps? I think, yeah, it, it's it's a combination of things, man. I Because people, you know, there's a book called Resilience out today. Right. There's a book called Grit out right, today. People right. are, are that's that's a trait that's that people are striving towards, mm-hmm. or at least some people. Mm-hmm. I, I know a lot of people are wanting to get back to that. 
that feeling of, you know, just just push through anything that comes your way, basically. It's good to hear you say that. I, I and, and I see that coming back with sort of, uh, you know, generations X, Y, and Z as well. Hope I'm not wrong. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Although uh, I'm not watching reality TV and I'm not right, in that crowd, so right, I don't sure. know. No, uh, for sure, we run in different circles. But no, I think it's a I think it's a great question. I think you look at it's a combination of during his generation, faith played a huge role. I think the Great Depression played a role. I think the he had a very traditional family structure. I think family plays a huge role. I think also, you know, World War Two that that was that was really yeah. shaped the character of the nation at that time. I mean, you had a whole country unify around like, you know, the, you know, the, you know why Norman Rockwell, you know, he painted the four freedom paintings mm-hmm. you know, back, very famous because they were selling war bonds. And the fact that they were able to do this national campaign to focus on just that is incredible these days in 2018 we can't get people to focus on anything and the stuff we do get them to focus on is the stupidest ever <laughs> and so it's like it just it lacks substance and and so i don't know i i think i think it was just, it was a different era it was a different time you're right and though people had a like centralized mission yeah, back then yeah. i don't know if we i don't think i could pinpoint to that now Mm-mm. So it's values, all over the place. values would be the key word. I would say family values, like you said, just values in general. But I, I do see, and it's interesting. I think there, you know, there, there is sort of this emergence of old souls. I suppose you call them. <laughs> That's that, a good that I, like that, that. I, that I see in you know twenty thirty somethings that that are looking to their grandparents and and looking to that generation and saying, what are the lessons that we can learn, not to imitate. Or, but to emulate, you know, characteristics that aren't out to, you know, copy that in the future, but to incorporate into their own authentic voice and their own, you know, needs and challenges that are uniquely theirs yeah. moving forward in the future. I, you know, I've never really thought about it, and I d- certainly didn't think about it when I was growing up, but I kind of grew up in the age of marketing. You were surrounded by marketing. You know, you would go to pizza and McDonald's to eat. You know, my parents didn't really know anything about health or food, so we would do that kind of stuff or buy canned or boxed things in the groceries. You would get marketed toys and stuff on TV. I just wonder if there's a pushback to that, pushback to that kind of, like, always in your face, basically trying to sell you stuff. Yeah. Subtly. Well, I, I think it's we're, we're past the point that MLK said where our technology has surpassed our humanity. I think more and more people are waking up and recognizing. I mean, in the world of interconnected social media, people have never felt more isolated, right? And, and so I, if, if I had to look into a crystal ball, I would say that over time there will be a pendulum swing back the other direction where it's not going to be ludite, you know, sure. like extremism, but it's going to say, hey, you know, all of that interaction through technology, it was just really a experiment. And like most of human history, it can be categorized as it seemed like a good idea at the time. But, <laughs> but <laughs> moving forward, we're like, no, actually people are giving up a lot. And it's not to say that it has to be black or white or binary, but just that, you know, there there's an opportunity for a lot more balance in the world. Because, you know, if if, if people don't take that time out 
you know, like you and previous podcasts and our conversations have been like, if you really want to be a a renaissance person, you've got to invest in yourself and you've got to have those habits and those routines and really understand time management and, and just know how to focus. If you don't, what are you investing in Mm -hmm. is the underlying question there. Absolutely. And, you know, and again, so just to wrap up, I mean, several years ago, there just weren't as many distractions. You had three channels on television. Mm -hmm. Now they're like a thousand channels, a million websites. And, you know, and people are spending, you know, on average hours on Facebook. It's just so and I'm like, well, then no wonder we're, you know, electing people that are not that smart or people aren't doing you know that articulate with what they're trying to express it's because it's just it's it's that culture it's sort of this anti-intellectualism i don't know if it's intentional but it's happening because because people are just because people are just being pulled away right and left anti-intellectualism that that terrifies me (laughs) sure 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 you said something that was really interesting in the fact that we you know we have the internet we have all these social media platforms but we feel isolated probably more isolated than ever. Why do you think that is? I think the the way the way to cure loneliness is to know thyself. It's mm. not complicated, right? And you can only know thyself if you can sit in silence and reflect and write and and connect with other people one-on-one and for that to be, you know, a deep meaningful spiritual connection. Um I've written a little bit about that. There's a lot of people that always need to re- be around people and they they cannot be alone with themselves. Mm-hmm. Then there's the opposite of people who thrive on being alone but but can barely be around people. And I basically said you should do the opposite, you yeah, know, yeah. train in the opposite. But to get back on your entrepreneurial journey, sure. Where where was your head at with your first venture? Like where were you before you started and then where were you during this this creation of your of your your startup a little deep i think and as i've gotten older realizing that the motives behind why we want to be entrepreneurs is complex Mm. and i think for some people it's like i used to joke when i was in college that the entrepreneurship club wasn't that it was that i'm young and i like the idea of being rich club (laughs) <laughs> I think the uh, you know, and in other cases, people are driven to entrepreneurship out of trauma, and they feel like it's a pathway to power, so that other people can't hurt them. Other people, it's you know, if they grew up with narcissistic parents, they're trying to, they feel like nothing they ever do is good enough, and they need to earn love and respect. It just depends. So, I think for me at the time. It was a combination of things, but it was primarily just out of the fact that I was independent and I loved the idea of it being a challenge when I did that first little classified newspaper. How I went about that was unorthodox. I'm happy to share that story. But Please, I'd love to hear it. Well, in a, in a nutshell, it was a little bit of a, you know, fake it till you make it. <laughs> Again, sort of, uh, you know, under the category of it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so I was I was 16 and I was a paper boy in the morning. I'd wake up every morning at like four o'clock and go deliver papers. And I was making extra extra cash that way and came up with this idea. I was like, well, 
look at these, you know, at the time, I think it was like the thrifty nickel, like, this is amazing. Like, you know, they're, they're making all this money from all these classified ads, but, and, and, and I don't know why I got this idea. I just was like, it'd be really cool to run that kind of business. Cause I knew I could do it cause I love selling. So I thought, how do you go about getting all those ads though from scratch? So I just copied and pasted them. I just, I looked at different newspapers and I just was like, I'm just going to start my first paper and type them in and do that. And sure enough, I did. And, and uh, <laughs> so, and they, you know, cause I was just like, it's better ask for forgiveness than permission. And once, once I had that first actual published edition, I think I made like about 10,000 copies or something like that. I went around and I knocked on good Lord, how many, at least 300 office doors throughout town. And you was get, this in Knoxville? No, this was in uh, this was in a little town called Corvallis, Oregon. Okay. And I was like, you know, you, you see this starry-eyed sixteen-year-old kid come in, saying, "Hey, I've got my own class." I mean, you don't say no to that. And <laughs> so I was able. So by the second round, it 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 be started to become a lot more legit, where I was able to, you know, charge two five hundred thousand dollars per page for these things, and just kept going until. There was a group of investors in town. They're like, you know, this is really interesting and we would want to take this over. Did you reach out to people at, like after that first initial run? Did you reach out to potential ad people or did they did they come to you in terms of having space? Oh, at that time it was all outbound. Out, okay, it was all very, outbound. very much outbound. Now, eventually, I mean, as I started to set up circulation stands, you know, yeah, I, I get some calls in. Which is always weird because it went to my personal phone, so I was never sure how to answer. Like, hey, this is Alex, or do I answer Corvallis <laughs> Classifieds? <laughs> so it was kind of, you know, I just explained it was a home-based business. But but I learned a lot, and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing half the time, but that's okay. And, you know, at at that point, you know, when when you're that age doing something like that, you can't really go wrong. And it was a good first step. What was the, if you could pinpoint it down, the biggest takeaway from that? Just the importance of making sure that if you're going to sell something, people have to see the vision and they have to, it has to be something they can touch or it has to be tangible, mm. right? Like I would say, I would say it's, it's just that ultimately if you want to, if you want to close a sale, so much of that not only comes down to the value proposition and the personality, but also trust. And people have to trust that that what you have is legit and that it will genuinely either solve a problem or add value in whatever way that it is that you're claiming. It's hard to sell an abstract. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So jumping to your magazine in college, was it? How, how did that start? Were you doing this also solo? I had been an editor of the Honors College magazine, and after that said, I really want to do something more for the university. So essentially it was, it was a little publication that was a color magazine where we were talking a lot about the sociology of higher education and almost kind of like being, I now think about it retrospectively, sort of like Vice, right? Like, oh, okay. like, the, like the Vice media brand. Like we were just sort of this, you know, group of rebellious writers that were respectful, but also not afraid to ask tough questions. Like I remember our first edition, it was, you know, how truthful is 
the university's advertising with recruiting students and just, you know, breaking down different pieces like, you know, hey, does the diversity that is represented in the pictures for all the print publications, is that proportionate to the actual spread of diversity that's actually on campus to other insights like that. How did you go about researching that? Because I imagine in college, you and your team didn't didn't have you didn't have the connections as you do now. So how, how did you go about finding out that that kind of information from people? Oh, it's the university. So I mean, at that time, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't like we were trying to launch a time magazine or anything right <laughs> i mean it was just it was just a little col- it was just a little college publication i mean that was more of a passion project i didn't make any i actually lost money doing it but it inspired me and helped me realize that as i look back at it retrospectively if you are an inspiring entrepreneur you could do worse than get your start in journalism because journalism teaches you how to ask thoughtful questions and how to do due diligence and how to do your research so that when you do write that business plan or you do put together that strategy, you can really be clear about what do you mean and how do you know so that you can make calculated decisions moving forward. And I think just that attitude, right, of being able to say, hey, you know, we're in school and we shouldn't be afraid to ask questions just around college campus from the president to you know, just about all the professors, it was relatively easy for us to sit down with them and say, hey, we want to talk to you about what it is we're writing about. Wow. I think that's, yeah, that's definitely a unique perspective in terms of, or compared to other students who are head down, take notes, make A's on tests. Oh my gosh. Higher education has changed so much. Well, I'll tell you another article I, I worked on that I remember was it was about the honors program. So just for, you know, like I, th- I think this is fascinating just to show the cultural shift in higher education over the past, say, three, four decades. But back during the late 70s, early 80s, the honors program at, you know, where I went to school in Oregon State, set up at the time, the idea was it was those classes were audited. There was no grade. And let's say, if, for instance, you were interested in the environmental sciences. Okay. You would, you would take an environmental sciences course. It would be in the evening. And, and you, would, you would read essays. You would read books. And they'd bring in real-world people from you know, the Capitol in Salem to consulting groups in Portland to come into class. So you've got that real-world industry experience. So, you know, and, and that's great because it's saying, hey, we want to prepare you for the real world. right? We want to help you become a well balanced person and understand what's happening in this profession that you want to go into. Well, at some point that program got down, it got shut down. The honors college then gets launched. And there the model is we're going to take the regular undergraduate curriculum and the honors college is just going to say for all these pre-existing classes, like, you know, you've got sociology, 400 level class, just put an H after it. And what does that H mean? It means that it's honors, and it's going to require extra work. And that's it. So in which case, it shifted from being in a low-stress, low-anxiety environment where it's more focused on just learning for the sake of learning to this sort of anxiety-written, stressful space where it's like, no, it's about being an overperformer, 
getting, you know, getting as good of a grade as possible so that you can then have that to increase your odds of getting into a good graduate program. And so that shift towards obsessing over the metrics, I think it takes away from the, the, the point, the point, the, 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 the bliss that can be a part of the learning process that can help a person identify their purpose, their authentic sense of self and a deeper love and understanding of the world around them. Wow. When you put it that way, it's, it seems like that uh, like college could be a place where you become a Renaissance person, if you will, Mm -hmm. a multi hyphenate person, Mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to go to be well-rounded, but, ultimately you're going to get really good at gaming the system it depends their difference i mean they're different schools I'm with different cultures here, yeah. but in general yeah. i i think i think it's a mess yeah i think the whole thing is a mess and <laughs> and i i'll tell you i went to an event just because i was passionate about it i i just got on the plane one day i had some friends up in new york that i went and saw and there was a conference on academic freedom hosted at the new school up there and I remember sitting in and they were talking about the corporatization of new school and also across the country and how you know the the rate of tenure is continually diminishing in this country and it's there's more of a of a publisher parish uh, mentality where if you want to keep your job you have to keep getting grant money no matter what it is you're researching so it's just the the there's just there's a huge shift and mm-hmm. and I think we're for me I just feel like we're giving up a lot going down that road where we're allowing you know I'm I'm not dissing capitalism but, but I'm just saying that but for it to only be about the money right uh, is we're we're doing ourselves a disservice because there's so much more to life than measuring success through just that one framework and that's why i think it's so important to take that initiative and become a self-made learner basically lifelong learner absolutely and and ultimately too i mean i remember you know and again if if there's dysfunction don't look to blame people look to blame the systems or lack thereof and for me i realized like i mean i was a renaissance man for sure when i was in school like i was the kind of guy i was talking about this just the other day i remember I was in an entrepreneurship class, and 30-something percent of the grade was surrounded around attendance. If you weren't in class, you got penalized. Well, being the, the free-spirited hippie that I was, I was, on the, <laughs> I was on the, like, I would spend my own money and go on the plane, and I was talking to angels, NBCs on Sand Hill Road in wow. Palo Alto, or I would be sitting in on lectures at Stanford, even though I wasn't a student. I hope that doesn't come back to bite me later. But or I was, you know, going and talking to other startups because at the time that's what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to get my company off the ground. And I said, I'm not getting what I need from Iowa. And what's more important, following the rules or doing what I feel like I need to do in order to build a strong company. But at the same time, you know, they don't want to hear that. They're like, well, you need to show up to class. And I said, well, I'm reading the material. I'm doing well on the test. Still got penalized. So that was, that's frustrating because mm-hmm. then because then you have to ask the question, you know, I think you look at any educational experience, you break it down into three things. You've got there's education, there's there's schooling and there's training. 
education prepares you to be a well-balanced person, prepares you to be that Renaissance man, that, that generalist. You then have training, and that gives you skills that have real-world market value. So you can go out and have a higher probability of getting a turnkey job with interchangeability. Schooling is something we don't talk about very much, and that is that's socialization. That is preparing you to probably be locked into a social class, whether you're conscious of it or not, where, where you just are going to, that's the world you know, you're going to go with the flow, and that is held together by a set of beliefs and experiences that will keep you locked into a certain socioeconomic strata can't predict individual behavior, but for group behavior, you can come up with some pretty strong probabilities that people are going to stay at a certain level. And so if you do have an entrepreneurial spirit and bent, you're just like, I don't want to get, I don't want to buy into that too much, right? right. Like, like you want to you have that balance of, of knowing that, you know, you can think outside of the box and do things your own way because you're trying to do something greater than what is a formula that society says you're supposed to follow. And speaking of doing things your own way, what what gave you the 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 umph, the initiative to get on a plane, to go to the Angels, to go to Stanford when you're nowhere in Stanford? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, that's don't a, do that, kids. <laughs> that's a level of boldness that. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, man. That was. I love it though. I but, was. I was just out of my mind half the time but <laughs> i was just like i'm just gonna do it i don't know where that confidence came from I most just, people wouldn't do that they might have the idea but they wouldn't jump on that idea yeah i just i just did shit i'm sorry i don't know if want to say shit but i would i just that's just who i was back then and and i'm still kind of like that i'm fearless like i feel i just think you as, need to be to have a startup i feel just as comfortable talking to you know one of the one of my homeless friends on walnut street bridge as i would be talking to richard branson i mean it just we're all human and so much of what divides us is really imaginary we're all much more connected than we realize mm. and so in that sense, what gave me that, I think it was just curiosity and also feeling like, hey, this entrepreneurship program that I'm in at the time, no disrespect to, you know, my alma mater, but it just, it was a new program and I just, I, I just wasn't getting what I knew I needed to do what I was setting out to do. And so, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurship classes, like a lot of higher education, was just very abstract. You know, the professors get up there and be like, well, you got to find something that the customer wants to buy. And, you know, and then another professor be like, well, don't forget the cash is king. And then another professor is like, well, you know, you got to remember, you know, do your SWOT analysis and all these. <laughs> I mean, but they, they love acronyms. They love these sound bites. But at the end of the day, I'm like, this isn't real world practical checklists that can help me get a tech company in the year, you know, 2005 off the ground. Right. At all. This is just, this is basically just preparing me for, to basically provide a little bit more of an entrepreneurial mindset for a typical corporate employer, which statistically speaking is where you all are trying to get me to be. Yeah, exactly. Going to Silicon Valley, you mentioned your idea of the online paying online rent mm -hmm. and um, helping that that contributing towards credit and you said it failed essentially 
Well, no, there's no failures. They're just learning experiences. You know? <laughs> sure. I mean, I, you know, I on, on that, I just to well share. Said, sir. Well I, said. <laughs> I had a really good quote I heard the other day by uh, John Wooden. It, it was something along the lines of, "It's okay to make mistakes, but you're only a failure if you blame other people for those mistakes." Ooh, that's good. I like that one. So I no, I it was it wasn't a failure, but it was a great learning experience and. And I just was really in over my head. I had done property management. I had this balance between the entrepreneurial spirit on my mom's side. I learned, you know, my dad was out in Iowa as a uh, professor at the law school and had a background in politics and had done a lot in public interest. So I always had a heart for social impact and social entrepreneurship. So I had this vision. I was like, wow, there are 35 million households across the country which is representing roughly a $650 billion wealth transfer from people that are not building equity. They're just helping the landlords or the property management groups or the REITs, real estate investment trusts, get richer. Now it could be argued that there's a value there. Sure. You know, there's convenience. You don't have to repair the toilet when it's broken and all that stuff. But a lot of those people, you know, are fit into the 80% of Americans that are working paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I remember just thinking, is it possible just to take that one thing and to create a system where at the time only 7% of uh, transactions for uh, rent payments were uh, made by credit card? Is it, is it possible to bring that up a little bit to the 21st century so people could pay? And, and then in which case, as they're making those credit card payments, that would mean then their FICO score increases, so they go to the bank and they apply for a mortgage or to a mortgage broker. And they're kind of getting that equity back because because the higher your FICO score, the lower your interest rates. And so what ended up happening was, you know, put some money in that I had made from investing and built some of the code and talked to Equifax, TransUnion, Experian, talked with, you know, some of the leading initiatives across the country that were trying to do s- – similar things or talking about it made some great relationships kept pushing forward couldn't just at the end of the day i couldn't find a way to to monetize it well enough besides just the credit card transaction then i realized okay in order for this to work this needs to be integrated with a larger platform that helps streamline the entire moving process altogether and once you're at that point that was when i quickly shut the doors because i said this is going to feel like boiling the ocean yeah that's a bigger project huge project and it's one i still think there are opportunities for today Mm -hmm. but at the time i just said you know being a 26 year old six-figure net worth living in one of the most expensive parts in the country not able to go up and you know get traction from angel investors or seed capital because it just again the business argument didn't make sense at the time even though it was a cool idea it was just a very humbling experience. And the best advice I got from some great mentors and advisors who I'd made out there said, Alex, you're a smart kid. Don't give up. We've all been in the situation where, you know, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But you're now in the heart of the bay. You're here. No reason to go back. Stay. And just learn from other people who are doing it. And just keep doing that until you're ready to go at it again. And I did. And it was one of the best decisions of my life. From that experience and, you know, from all of your your business experiences, what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way of what not to do when you're running a business? 
I think the, the, the main one is what not to do is to get stuck in your own head. What not to do is think that you're smart. What not to do is to focus more on identifying the technologies that get you excited or the solutions that get you excited and instead really focus on on uh, the product market fit. At mm -hmm. the end of the day, that's just, there There are still, I mean, and this applies for it's any business, not just tech, right? But there are so many businesses that just get so obsessed over the technologies. Like how many, how many times do you go to a startup website and they just delve straight into talking about the features? Well, it's got this level of encryption or it's got this type of, you know, da da da, like, you know, database integration or whatever. And I'm like, I don't really care. Tell me a story. Yeah. And you're really good at that. I mean, you're an amazing storyteller. And that, that's how you win in the 21st century. That's how you break through the noise. No one cares about how much you know until they know how much you care, to quote John Maxwell. Like, they, there needs to be an emotional connection that shows, like, hey, this is, this is what this is about. And a part of that story is not only fun or it's uplifting or it's inspiring, but it alludes to how you're solving a problem or you're adding value to to something and and knowing what drives human behavior and, and consumer behavior either on the consumer level or business level that's really all you've got to focus on and do, and everything else falls into place and people you know make the mistake of doing steps four six and five before one two and three and steps one two or three are think about different design concepts go through the design thinking process or another product design methodology overlapping that with business modeling market research and then go and growth hack and and get orders and get sales get some kind of commitment whether it's pre-orders or whether it's mous or letters of intent so that you're rigging it to either win a little or win a lot the moment you come out of the gates and if you do that entrepreneurship can be a lot of fun but if you do it the old way and you're like well we're just going to launch and build the ship as it's leaving the harbor <laughs> <laughs> I see a lot of sunken battleships out there because because they just they 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 didn't understand that the wisdom behind slowing down before you speed up. Man, so that last sentence you just said, lot of fantastic terminology and if you if you know if you if you're in it, you know what you're talking about. But for somebody just starting out, there was a lot of things that they probably have like they oh sure like, whoosh, right over the head so let's what, delve in what advice would you give to somebody who maybe has an idea but hasn't jumped on it and let's say that that I, they haven't jumped on it isn't because of mental barriers mm. it's just maybe maybe this is a barrier but you know resources or you know they just haven't they don't know where to start yeah well i think you know success starts when you start where you're at and so self-awareness is always key when I when I sit down with with prospective clients, if if I you know if they're not a large corporation or if they're not coming in already being a millionaire, you know I try to have a very lovingly candid conversation with them, and try to get you know a dose of groundedness and realism. Like where are we really at right now? Like you're coming in, like say somebody may come in here, and they're in debt or they have you know very very little low like four or five figure net worth and they're talking about wanting to launch the next facebook i'm like yeah you never want to say no but at the same time my best advice towards someone who's just getting started or thinking about doing something or wanting to take their lives to the next level is focus on yourself first 
a business or a new venture second. And start with the best preparation you can do before launching a company and being an entrepreneur and a CEO is to be the CEO of your own life. Think about how your own life can be run as a business. What does that look like? Do you as an individual, do you have a board of advisors? Do you have a personal brand? Do you have a website where you are sharing your thoughts and your ideas and establishing your own credibility? Do you have just business cards that you're passing around to people that you meet and say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm passionate about. If more entrepreneurs took or aspiring entrepreneurs took the time out to build that personal brand and run their own lives like a business where not just on the promotion side, but also on the operation side, you're, you're tracking where you spend your time. And at the end of each month, you sit back and you're like, huh, that's really interesting. I spend, let's say, 20 hours a month on social media. I should probably cut that down to five and see how I can reallocate that time towards something a little bit more productive. Or you look at something like a mint.com or an aggregator of your finances and you're like, wow, I spent, you know, 800 bucks this month on food. I should probably <laughs> bring that down to maybe 500. Well, I, I, I bought $500 worth of tacos. I bought month. $500 worth of tacos. Like what was the opportunity cost for that? <laughs> and, 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 but for real, that, that just focusing on, on that and just thinking about, you know, all these different aspects of your life and how it fits into a larger system and modeling that out, that can just do wonders because when you've got the right habits, the right work-life balance, the right relationships, we're the sum of the people we spend the most time with, and you've got a strong sense of purpose and, and you really feel like what's driving you in your heart is a love for something larger than yourself. And the focus is on building that brand and learning and, and, and getting people to step up because you know we're all most likely to help those that we feel are most like ourselves. So when you know if if people are complaining, they're like, "Well, I don't have anyone coming out to help me." I was like, "Well, because you're not telling a story." But if you tell a story that is authentically and uniquely you, you will have people come out of the woodwork that are older, that are wealthier, that are wiser, that say, "You know what? I like you." And your success is my success. What can I do to help you take your life to the next level? Because that makes me feel good as well, knowing that I'm continuing the values and the beliefs that I have for the kind of world that not only I want to live in, but I want my children and grandchildren to live in. So I'm going to help you because as an extension of that. And from there, it's amazing how things just fit in together. Life works when you let it. And as long as you do things in the right order, you know, this, this entrepreneurial narrative of it has to be stressful and anxious and 16 hour, eight days, 18 hour days. Or as I used to joke with one of the startups I worked with, they're only 36 hours a day, nine days a week. You know, <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, and, 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 and I know there are icons out there that say, oh, well, you know, you got to hustle and you got to work hard. And da, da, da. I was like, okay, but, or, or you cannot do that and just chill out for a second. And if you just do things gradually and take your time and have fun with it, you can stop chasing and start attracting and, and things kind of happen on their own. You can use time to your advantage instead mm -hmm. of your detriment. Yeah. But I think we have an obsession with having successful youth in this country and, and especially out in the Bay area where it's like, you know, kids that are in the Forbes 30 under 30, like everyone out there aspires to be on those types of lists. And I think it's great. I have a lot of yeah. friends on that list and they know I love them. 
And I, I think it's wonderful. But that's one of the things I personally like about being in the Southeast is that the the pace of life here is, yeah, people work hard and they hustle, but there's not that sense of, like, you know, you have to get there right away. It's more about just make sure you get to where you're going safely and that mm. you have fun in the process. Mm. <laughs> yeah, everybody loves a baby genius. <laughs> right? I want to jump to uh, CoLab. Sure. Where did that come into your life? So when I was when I moved back to Knoxville from San Francisco, it was a little bit of a culture shock. Imagine so, so. <laughs> much that I did a stand-up comedy routine because I was just like, "Oh my gosh, this is like what okay." Is, I must hear about this. Oh, it was. I mean, it was all kinds of jokes. I was like, "Yeah, I got back to Knoxville and and I." told my mother you know i was really excited about the green home movement and she said oh well we have green homes in knoxville we also have them in blue yellow (laughs) red to when i told people i was a progressive they thought it meant i was working with the insurance company (laughs) (laughs) i mean it just goes on it's just nonsense but no i love my hometown and 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 it is up and coming and just like chattanooga and but but at the time one of one of my biggest challenges was that you know here i was i'd been in san francisco i was doing a lot of consulting projects basically in the capacity of being able to make a living doing website development and PR and biz dev projects and all this stuff with just a computer and, and a cell phone. And I get to Knoxville and I'm like, where do I go get those projects here? And it just, it wasn't there. You know, you talk to the larger employers and they just like deers and headlights are like, we don't really know. Like, do you want to, like, here's our job listing, apply for a job. Like, this is, you don't pitch us, we pitch you. And so just just a different dynamic. And so to answer your question, that need led to developing Knoxville's first entrepreneurial community center and co-working workspace, which was called Knoxville Overground. And that is sort of was like the half-sibling to the company lab. So that was how I got to meet Enoch Elwell and Sheldon Grizzle, who were the co-founders, who at the time were with a group called Create Here. And we just became good friends and hit it off and did a lot of collaboration. And so then over the years, I found myself coming down to Chattanooga a lot, being involved in a variety of those initiatives and just loving the culture and the spirit down here so much that when a job became available to work at the last company I was with full-time called Variable, Mm -hmm. I jumped on the opportunity and just relocated everything. Very cool. You're a big proponent of community and culture. What what do you think makes a thriving startup culture? What are the components? Great question. I think underlying a thriving startup culture is a collective attitude of abundance that mm. propels a pay it forward attitude and and just actions and behaviors i mean one of the things i loved about chattanooga when i first moved here was the moment i moved into my new apartment four neighbors total each came up to me and said can i help you move in your furniture wow to i then remember like a few weeks after that i was at whole foods and i was i was checking out in the i left my wallet in the car and it came to i forget how much it was like 20 something dollars I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go run back and get my wallet. The woman behind me said, oh, no problem. 
I'll take care of this for you. Just pay it forward next time. To That's the so nice. to to the degree that you know, ever since I've been here, just uh, you know, people inviting me over for dinner or having community potlucks or just the ongoing sense of community where people want everyone to feel like you have a place in Chattanooga. You are loved. You are welcome. You are you are here and appreciated. Wow, that goes such a long way. And I think that that is much, much more powerful than the gig, than the capital, than frankly anything else we have as, as a community. And I hope we start to celebrate that more in the years ahead. But to address your other issues, I think also, you know, as a part of a, a thriving scene, you need the obvious. You need access to capital. You need talent. You need also an understanding and ongoing collaboration around where are the opportunities. And I think in fairness for everything we have going for us, that's an area where we're also lacking is people can spend a lot of time and resources finding the right opportunity that makes the most sense for them. And we don't do a good job yet of helping people navigate how to get to uh, a path forward where they're either going to win a little or win a lot based off where they're at. And, and I think that's something that I hope we'll see change in the culture in the months and years ahead, that this attitude that a lot of us have as Chattanoogans, that no matter who you are or what category you fall under, there is a path forward where you can either win a little or win a lot. Starting even if like, I mean, I've over the past year for this reboot, which I'm happy to chat about, I've been interviewing people and hearing some of their stories of how they literally went from nothing in their bank account, like one that literally had like less than a thousand dollars and made over a hundred thousand or wow. another woman made over, you know, 250,000. I'm happy to share those yeah, stories. T- tell me about reboot. Okay. Yeah. Reboot is, it's a grassroots effort where we, we wanted to address sort of this unspoken but yet felt and known cynicism that there there are some gaps in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. There's no doubt about it. There's no one in Chattanooga, I think, saying, you know what, we're doing everything perfectly. We just know how to work really hard and we and, and we know how to love harder. <laughs> and we are <laughs> and we're gonna keep at it until we get it right. But that being said, you know, you got to be a realist with a positive attitude and say, look, like we're also not doing a lot of things right. We have a high fail. We have a high failure rate when it comes to our startups. Let's just keep it real. Like I get phone calls still from people that said, Alex, I thought I did everything right. And I'm now in debt. What do I do? Mm-hmm. It's tough. And it's also, I get emotional about it because I'm like, that should really be unacceptable. Like we did something wrong as a community, encouraging a person to go down that path. And now, you know, if their credit score is messed up or they're in debt, like that, that's not just a quick fix. That's a, that can be a long battle to get out of that hole. So we need to just own up to that and say, how can we do this better? So this, this is a conversation series about what can we provide as a community to make sure that, as we said, people down an entrepreneurial path, that they are equipped with the tools and the frameworks and the resources that they need to succeed. So an example of that, like an idea that's come out of this, is to have a uh, conference or an expo where you get lots of regional companies coming together to say, hey, here are some of our reseller programs. So not talking about multi-level marketing. That's a completely different animal that I don't want to get into. 
but you know, from a local company that has custom neckties to a company that says, hey, we sell air filtration you know, equipment to another company that, you know, she just imports jewelry from China and sells it on Facebook and does really well. So you combine all of those things. And the theme is that while these people are working full time in their spare time, they're making an extra thousand, three thousand, five thousand dollars a month or more. And they tuck it away. And to the point where they then they're, you know, my advice has been, you know, for years, and it's glad it's good to see this come out in a lot of the, you know, surveys that we're doing in focus groups, is that that's what people want too. They 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 don't want to go around and ask for seed capital a because, you know, it's sometimes it comes at the risk of compromising too much, and another right. and in other cases, more cases than not, especially now, it's just not there. Like, I, I'm, I'm glad you've got an idea for a mobile app company in a world where there's 1.4 million mobile apps in the iTunes store and another 1.5 in, you know, the Google Play store, whatever it is now. Great. But you know what? You It is such an uphill battle. And if you had joined that, you know, uh, circus in the late mid to late 2000s, you might have had a chance of going out and raising your little million dollars, but I'm sorry, like it's it's not that, it's, it's not easy. So you've got to use your own money. So then the question is, well, how do I build wealth? So that's what a community can, can do well. And I think that's where we're seeing a shift in Chattanooga's culture is it's shifting away from how do we build great companies to how do we build great people who have their own resources so that as they then come up with their entrepreneurial ideas, they're like, they can personally fund the market research, the market validation to do the business modeling, to do the preparation, to also do the training mm -hmm. and to put that foundation in place so that when they are ready to launch straight out of the gate, it's much more likely to be successful. And it also puts the leverage in their court. So when they do get additional financing or investment capital, um, it becomes a significantly easier process that's less stressful. Have you thought about recording this, by the way? Like, this would be a fantastic podcast. I, thought, reboot, I, thought, or... I thought you were recording it. <laughs> oh, I was supposed to hit the record Oh, button. man. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> I just like talking to people with mics. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think what... what they, the, that's a good way to get the word out, too. I think the end game is we're going to publish a report, and that report's oh, going to be shared with uh, stakeholders in the community. Um, as well as the general public, it will be available for download. If you if you want to stay up to date with that, just I guess for now go to startupchamps.com and get signed up for our newsletter, and we'll promote it that way. But but it, it, there'll be insights that will be shared, and from there it will give us a different. It will give us real survey data and a framework through which to think about what are things that as a community we need to focus on next, so that we don't get complacent. And that we continue to move forward this entrepreneurial renaissance that is so dear and so meaningful to so many of us in our city. Absolutely. I want to, I want to uh, jump into uh, skills real quick. There's three skills that you have a lot of skills, but there's three that I'm interested in that you are very good in. And that's connecting with people. You're definitely a super connector. At least I think so. Appreciate that. Validating ideas. Your fantastic validating ideas. And the third is speaking and communicating. So I'd love to talk about those certain skills and maybe 
get into the nitty gritty of how can you get started in those areas or how can you improve yourself in those those areas? I think before you even go down that road, I would just encourage everyone to say, like, take, for instance, the Gallup Strengths Finder, you know, strengths.gallup, I think, dot com. Mm-hmm. And I forget how much it's going for now, like 50 or 60 bucks. But I remember when I first took that, it said, you know, my first strength was I was a futurist. And then the second (laughs) was connectedness. So I'm really good at seeing patterns and not making predictions, but coming up with probabilities for how things could unfold. Mm -hmm. And then second, I'm good at just connecting the dots and looking at systems in the big picture, both uh, strategically as well as just, you know, from operations and systems in general. Please tell me you have futurist on your business card. One of these days. (laughs) That would would be cool. I've got a... Yeah, there's there's always a yeah I can get into that <laughs> later. But but to address your question, I wouldn't yes. give any one advice on this is what you can do to be more I, like Alex. Smart. I think I think yeah. that I would that would be doing people a disservice. And I think that's something that we put way too much pressure, especially on younger generations, to try to fit a mold that is sort of this paragon of success, you know, example of that being like, oh, every kid needs to be a coder and all that nonsense. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, yeah, it's an emerging market and the world does need more coders. The world needs more people in cybersecurity and all this stuff. But if you're going to go chase that just because you're attracted to the image and the money, that's a lot like getting married just for money. I mean, you're going to be miserable. Especially if you don't like coding. Especially if you don't like it. And truth be told, it's just not for everyone, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Everyone's born with natural strengths and talents. The trick is to find what the Japanese call your ikigai, your sense of purpose. And simply put, you can type that into Google, I-K-I-G-A-I, and look at how you can overlap what you love, what you're naturally good at, what the world needs, and what other people are willing to pay for. And just brainstorm. And there's no right or wrong answer. You can't make any mistakes. Life isn't supposed to be anything. Just have fun with it and see where those four things overlap. And uh, and if you're building that solid foundation first where you're focusing on finances, you've got solid relationships and friendships, you're taking care of your health, you know, all just that adulting, real-world stuff, <laughs> you know, don't worry about trying to do too much too fast and, and just build that foundation and then the rest of the pieces are easier to build on top of that. I love that. That's great. I want to get into some quick questions. Sure. Quickish. Quickish questions. Um, I'm looking at a fantastic bookshelf here in your office. What are some of your favorite books on display? Or not on display, but I see you got uh, Bold there by... Peter Demendis, that's a great yes, book. Yes, yes. I, w- I wouldn't even know where to start. It, it depends on what people are interested in. To, I'd say Super Forecasting is right there. That's one of my favorites. That one about it. I haven't read that one. So those those were those were two researchers that the they developed a project called the Good Judgment Project out of Pennsylvania. Okay. And this is a story about how they were able to pull together what they called super forecasters, people who had very uh, interesting characteristics, both personality and and behavior, that for less than $200 gift cards to Amazon, to all these, I think, like a couple hundred people in the group, they were able to out-predict 
the future of geopolitical events and competitions surpassing the collective U.S. intelligence community, which roughly employs 100,000 people with a $50 billion a year budget. So similar to the spirit of another great book that talks about, you know, sort of the role of data and making better business decisions, at least that's, you know, what I got out of it when I read Moneyball by Michael Lewis, you know, his former, he was brought into, you know, Solomon Brothers and so, which was really cool because he was a writer, he was a sort of, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's, he's just got a great story, but, but the premise is that, you know, through Billy Bean at the Oakland A's by using sabermetrics, you know, how is the Oakland A's with a fraction of the budget of say like the New York Mets able to win the world series is because they understood how to do the data analysis and to look at the stats, to pinpoint who was most likely to be a good player on, on the team. And so not only is that a great book for, I gave that to a lot of my clients that are in financial services. I said, if you're hiring analysts, you need to hire for these characteristics from this book. But it's also a good indication for if you are a entrepreneur, you want to be in a point where you can see the future and you can see probabilities for this future more clearly than most other people so that if you are starting a new venture ahead of the curve, that's 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 how you win, right? In anything in life. Like I remember I learned this a long time ago when I was in high school and there was a and I remember I didn't start running for cross country till I was maybe like late sophomore. But the kid that was running the six minute miles had been training since he was in seventh, eighth grade. That's why he was statewide one of the best runners, was because he had that extra time to prepare. Right. So so that that's the trick is just to, you know, basically start running the race before everybody else and you're more likely to come out ahead. So what, whatever new venture it is, I mean, if the goal is to really, you know, be like a change maker, it's knowing the right timing and, and, and when to start training and, and when to prep for that. So that's super forecasting and money ball. Super forecasting, money ball. What are books that you come back to, either physically or mentally, you, you come back to? Well, the main one, I mean, at least for the work I do, is Discipline Entrepreneurship by Bill Olay, who's out of MIT Sloan. I constantly give away copies of that book to people. Gave away a bunch at 3686, which is the state's leading entrepreneurship conference in Nashville each year. It's it's a 24-step process towards market validation for okay. for technology startups. And honestly, like I, I sometimes I regret talking about it because I feel like if everyone read it, I'd be out of the job. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty straightforward. And I tell people like, look, if you were to take all of the companies that came out of MIT Sloan since 2006, this is straight from the author, not me, of course, but you, you would have somewhere in the ballpark of the 11th largest economy in the world. So wow. when I talk to clients or I talk to people about this, I was like, so let's assume that they know what they're doing. And rather than keep on trying to reinvent the wheel and, you know, fall into this trap of making it an ecosystem, not an ecosystem, which happens a little bit too often, let's just look at what's working and to say, you know, hey, that ultimately you actually don't have to spend, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars getting an education at MIT just to pick up a book for less than 30 that kind of guides you through a framework step by step on how a lot of the best technology companies that we see today that are in the headlines, they just didn't stumble across it. 
they followed a process. And that's and that's interesting. And I've been in this category before, and I'm trying to really pay attention to it now. And that's uh, when I'm reading a book to not immediately jump onto the next book without actually taking advantage of what it's saying and and trying to apply it. I think it's easy to fall into that category of like, oh, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? It depends on what you want to do. When I was when I was younger, I uh, got a subscription to a something called Executive Book Summaries, which I think is still around at summary.com. And it was just great. Like they, they would, I, I, I really loved it. I'd get these in the mail and it would just give you like the cliff notes for these were the leading business books of the time. And you get to be old like me. I'm 39 now. You know, I've read most of that stuff over the years. And I'm like a lot of the business books, even that come out today, they're just repeating the same old ideas that were repeated 10, 20 years ago, at least over 85% of the time. And you, and you get new ideas like, you know, like in management, you get like holacracy or you've got like different, you know, styles, obviously, for the role that different exponential technologies are going to play on the way we do business and exponential leadership and organizations and all that stuff. But but for the most part, it's like uh, what's the guy's name who wrote a great artist steel, David Klein or something like that. It's kind of true. I mean, a lot of a, a lot of ideas that are out there are pretty well circulated. And so I think the best way to start is not to get too bogged down trying to read verbatim book by book because also you look at psychology and you're not going to remember all of that. You sure. know, like what what we end up remembering when we read a book is usually less than 1% of it. Right. So if you want to start out, you know, learning about the world of business, arguably the best thing to do is just to read a lot of good quotes and to read a lot of those good book summaries so that you can develop a very strong macro overview and mind map in your head to see how all these different concepts and ideas and theories fit together. And then as you get older, you boil down and to say, hey, you know, this is really cool. I want to I want to get more focused on this. It's a good way to quickly see what you want to explore. Mm-hmm. You know, like if a quote really hits you in a good way, maybe you should go further. What are some of your daily routines, daily habits that you have? Well, lately it's been I wake up in the morning and I will go through you know, a variety of RSS feeds. Any particular favorites? Just the usual. I mean, I look at the New York Times, I look at The Economist, I look at The Wall Street Journal. I look at, you know, a variety of different blogs out there. I then will usually, you know, get a make a smoothie. I'll, I'll map out these are the things I want to get done for the day. If it's any adjustment to every Sunday, I take the time out to plan out the rest of the week and put it on my calendar. What does that process look like? It's It's prioritizing right so it's it it depends it's a decision matrix but I tried to make sure that roughly 90% of my time that I allocate towards work is devoted toward either building the business or driving business and then the remaining 10% is sort of like experimental now that's just where I'm at right now now I mean it could be that I mean you look at you know, other companies will say, hey, you know, similar to like the early days of Google where they said, hey, work for four days out of the week, fifth day, you go do whatever the heck yeah. you want. So, I mean, everyone's got a different way they go about making those decisions. I think it's important to be aware of your decision making process. And because one of the issues where we, I think we all stumble is we we don't know how to prioritize in a way that aligns with our values and what we really care about, where we're always bombarded with 
limited time and resources and way too many decisions that we could be making. Yeah, so, I don't know about you, but I fall into the sometimes where I'm not even doing the things that I prioritize. And some of that, and some of that just takes experience. I think it, if if you don't have a mentor and if you haven't gone through different things, you just don't know how to estimate how much time it's going to really take to do something right. So, all the, like all the more reason just to don't bite off more than you can chew. Surround yourself around smart people and just you know study others who have done it and break it down. But for me, just the that that process, and then I get here. I love my. I just bought it recently. You can get it at cho- choosemuse.com. It's an EEG headband, so I'll I'll meditate before the start of each day. And so oh yeah, I've seen those. Oh, it's it's so awesome. It's right over there. So I'll put it on my forehead. It syncs up with my smartphone. I listen to the narrator, and it'll be ocean in the background or crickets or something. And meditation is just so powerful in terms of just being able just to, to focus and between meditation, eating well and exercise that does more to help me reduce my anxiety and stress and increase my focus than anything else I've ever done. You've had an interesting health journey to say the least. Well, I got caught up in a trap like a lot of Americans where I, you know, I, I worked one job where I was putting in well over 12 hours a day, sometimes more, startup culture. And then, you know, when I was doing the accelerator, it wasn't just like launching one company. It was launching as many as 12 at a time. You know, even though I wouldn't take credit for the entrepreneurs and their success, it still required a lot of just interaction with all of them. And, and all of that just... Uh, it catches up with you. And I remember just waking up at the end of that, just feeling exhausted. I was 250 pounds. I saw myself getting a lot more cynical. I just didn't feel like I was myself, just almost kind of lost my head and disconnected a little bit and just said, I've got to turn this around. Like, and it was crazy because a lot of my friends were like, Alex, you cover it up so well. Like I, you don't even look fat. I'm like, how can I not look fat? I'm 250 pounds. So maybe they were just being nice. I don't know. But I, <laughs> but I, I, I just, I was, I, I did not feel like I was myself. So I discovered a place called Optimum Health Institute. There's one in Austin. There's one in San Diego, huge, huge fan and did a volunteer program for three months. And collectively lost about 75 pounds and but what i tell people is what i learned during that process which was a mind body spirit detox it's the things you let go that you don't see or the things that change your life more than losing the weight Mm. i i feel like a lot of people uh don't realize how much their body and their health affects their mental state absolutely Absolutely. Which then ties back to your question, what can we do to improve the entrepreneurial community? It's all about personal development and and helping people like, you know, figure out how to do biohacking, right? Like (laughs) to coin that (laughs) phrase, in addition to thinking about life design, because there, there are a lot of things that do not require, you know, crazy drugs, in my opinion you know, emphasis on opinion. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a scientist and don't claim to be, but just my experience has been that sometimes the easiest solution is often the right one. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, it like, I, I love, I love the book, The Omnivore's D- Dilemma That's by Michael Pollan, who's out of Berkeley. And he breaks down a lot of his meta research in terms of what's the ideal diet down to three basic rules. 
you know, eat food, meaning like stuff that actually grows from the earth, doesn't come out of a manufacturing plant, mostly plants, which is not to say you can't eat meat, just don't eat as much of it, and just not so much. Monitor your calories. And it's incredible. You do that, and wouldn't you know it, after thousands of years of evolution, the, the, hum the human body and mind is designed to thrive. It's designed to be self-repairing. It's designed to be miraculous for that matter if we only get out of our own way. And we have continuously over the past few years have done so much experimentation in the name of science and innovation. But it, it, it comes back to create more problems than it solves. So getting back to our roots and, you know, Optimum Health Institute is just a fantastic way of if anyone ever needs a vacation, because I often joke, I say, we've got a multi-billion dollar industry where people take vacations and then they get back home and they need a vacation from the <laughs> vacation. So, yep. but like, if you ever really actually want to go somewhere to truly be rejuvenated inside and out, this is an amazing place, optimumhealth.org. And there are very few places like it in the country, but for roughly $1,000, $1,500 a week, you can have a life-transforming experience that will last with you for months and years not only in terms of making you feel better, but also there are people that go there with health challenges. And while they don't make any medical claims, and I certainly don't either, I can personally bear witness to the fact that I have seen people overcome diabetes, cancer, Lyme disease, depression, a variety of other health concerns that modern medicine was not able to provide a solution for. So those results are not typical. You don't go in there expecting that. But if you go in there being open to the possibility that inside of you, if you are able to make your body healthy, that you have an amazing, miraculous immune system and that you are stronger than you think, be open to the possibility that you can heal on your own if, if you try to allow your body to flesh out what's not working for you and not just body, but mind and spirit as well. Wow, you're here. What's, what's been your favorite travel experience? That's a good question. My favorite travel experience would be I would I would have to say when when I was younger one of the biggest culture shocks that I ever went through was when I went through the Scandinavian countries and in particular Sweden and just being opening my eyes I was very much you know grew up in a Republican family and just very conservative at the time it was just like well socialism just doesn't work you know and and I still would not label myself I'm not a socialist I just consult myself middle of the road moderate but a trip like that opened my eyes to 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 kind of saying you know there are different ways of thinking about the role of government and our responsibility to each other, our responsibilities to each other as members of society. You tend to make different decisions when you embrace the idea that an injustice done to someone is an injustice done to everyone. You tend to make different decisions in both different ways when you realize that a society is only as strong as its uh, weakest link and and uh, so that being said i don't think any country on the planet has got it entirely right sure at all every country's got its issues 
and you know people can criticize america all they want we're still as crazy as it is right now we're still doing a lot of things okay mm-hmm. and it's still a good country to live in and even though things are hard you know we we, we, we still have a lot of blessings and and so f- i think just that experience and others you know been everything from Dominican Republic to Southeast Asia to traveling throughout Europe on the train when I was in my 20s to Russia, you know, Canada. Like, I mean, just I have had the opportunity to travel the world. And the best thing that's ever come out of that is not doing the tourist experiences, but just getting to talk with the locals and and put myself in their shoes to really understand not just, you know, like, oh, well, what kind of foods do you eat or whatever? I mean, that's fine. But where change really happens is to understand and to delve into their framework and their schema and the way they view the world. And then to bring that back with you and not only allow that to transform your own life, but to hopefully allow it to influence, hopefully for the better, your your community and, and the country that you live in so that we can move toward a future where there's more, less talking and more communication. I love that. What advice would you give to somebody pursuing creative work? doesn't have to be a startup, but some sort of creative outlet. Be mindful of, of, I have a lot of artist friends and artists, artists. Now I'll, I'll say this. My attitude has changed about this over the years. How so in that, I mean, I've, I've got the soul of an artist. I get it. I know what it's like to have that creative spark and just to want to do your own thing, but be mindful of at the end of the day, who's who's paying for that privilege is that is that being you know subsidized by parents are your are your friends coming in and bailing you out are you or are you really like just nose to the grindstone and you know working at starbucks living out of a van and just doing it because you feel like you it's not just you're just doing what you love but you're like, I see how this can fit into a larger vision that can propel me forward. So, like, for instance, I I was visiting with someone just this afternoon. She's a screenwriter. And she said, you know, yeah, I've, I've gone into debt to to be a screenwriter and to get the training. But I also know exactly how many scripts I need to sell in order to make that back. And I'm actively getting mentors and advisors to help me put those pieces in place so that I see that in game as being real. She has a plan. She has a plan. So you're saying it more succinctly than I am. That's the advice is just to make sure that you have a plan in place that if you are going to do creative work, whether it's, you know, do music or, or do art or do writing or do photography or do film or what, whatever your creative outlet is just to be thinking about, how that's going to affect your livelihood, how that will impact the people in your life around you. And so, which is, which is why like the best advice, and again, it's, it's rational. It doesn't always, it can be sometimes hard to swallow, but if, if you can find something that allows you to make a steady income and then do the art on the side, that's always preferable. I realize that in some cases an artist might be like, well, that's not, that goes against their authenticity or there's some sure. other argument for it. And I don't, 
I'm not going to get into that. I mean, everyone's got to make their own decisions over 18. We're all adults, but just that I think, I think there's a possibility and I forget who is, who said this on a Ted talk, but this notion that like all artists just have to struggle and be crazy and drink and smoke and, or just, you know, it's like, it always has to be like this, <laughs> this like David versus Goliath, like, right. Oh, society is just out to get me. And if you want to be Hemingway, you got to drink like Hemingway. <sighs> I'm mentality. like, okay, I, I guess, but I also just, to me, we make the story, we tell ourselves real. Oh, that's good. And, we if we tell our, we tell if we tell right. ourselves a different narrative, meaning, you know what, it's actually possible to take care of myself, to practice self-love, and also to be creative. Someone, I, not look, it's just I'm just sharing an opinion. I, I there are going to be people of out course. there that are going to say, no, you don't understand the creative personality. Okay, I don't, but, but I just, but I'm asking the question: Is that possible? to say that you, 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 you can be creative and go about it in a way that, that, that doesn't have to make it as hard. I think that's just smart. I mean, there's two sides to that coin and the, and the fact that if you do take a crappy job or just take a job in general, general, you could argue that you're spending a lot of your energy focused on something else versus focusing on your art. But at the same time, what you're hitting on is the fact that if you don't do that and you do hit bumps in the road, you're going to be so stressed that you you can't focus on your art. I think so. But I mean, but, you know, look, I mean, I think it's compounded with the fact that in the media, we love hearing stories of like, oh, J.K. Rowling lived in her car and wrote Harry Potter and then became the billionaire. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, there there are all these stories of, or, you know, like the, the starving artist that was in the street in Hollywood and got spotted and then, you know, got into a movie or whatever. So it... But, but you don't but, hear about the, the non-JK Rowlings who are still living in their cars. Correct. And or that's, moved in back into their parents' house. I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I joked, I said, if, if I had an extra million dollars, I would create an app that, that leveraged the power of AI and big, di- and, and big data to help people make better life decisions. Because most people, like most people make decisions off of narratives, off of experiences, off, I mean, frankly, pick your bias. But the more we can say like, hey, you know, let's look at the statistical probability that the patterns you have and what you're doing is going to lead to the outcome that you want. That's people, a lot of people just aren't there yet. And so they're just kind of like, but, yeah. but not, but not to say that like, I mean, it's a balance between using both sides of the brain at the same time. Like, of course you have to follow your heart and intuition. We can never know all the data. We can never know all this stuff. But if you make majority of life decisions using both sides of the brain, the rational and the intuitive, you're probably going to be better off. And I say probably because there are always exceptions. But Of course. A few more. If there were, let's say, three skills you could master instantly, what would they be? What would you choose? Well, You'd me, be an instant me, master. Me personally. Statistics. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think data science and predictive modeling and that sort of stuff, it's just such a universal skill set that you can apply towards anything. And I'm actually thinking about you know, doing 
graduate classes online. I know or, there's some good statistics at Udacity classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just there's so much good stuff out there online these days. It's yeah. just it's 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 great. So I, and that and that and that's just me. I think another, you know, skill that's always good for anyone for that matter is just grammar and writing. You just you can't get enough experience with that. There it is it is amazing how many people are out there in the real world that just cannot, you know, write a complete sentence for the life of them. And there's and they're in some positions where I'm like, how could you have been in that spot for that long and you're writing an email like yeah, this? Talk about not getting a job or it's not getting a client. And I think a lot of that you could delve back to like we don't teach how to diagram sentences anymore the way we used to in school and all this stuff. But beyond that, I mean, I would say that beyond just the practicality, if it was something for fun, it would be something like, I mean, this is the artist in me. It would be like music theory. Ooh. I personally, like I have just sort of, it's been on the back burner. I wake up and... I love EDM, I love dubstep, I love electronica music, I love classical, I love jazz, I love all different types of genres, and and I'll be running, like, across the bridge, and if I don't have my headphones on, like, I will come up with music in my head. Oh, really? And and they're really amazing beats, and, and then I'm <laughs> like, wait a minute, how do I write that down? Oh, I can't, and uh, so... That would, so that would be something else I would love to learn one of these days. I it's, love it. Uh, remind me to show you some tech cool. later. Cool. Okay, two two final questions. Yeah. Uh, the first, a parting question, something that people can think about for themselves or even journal. What's, what's a good uh, takeaway question, an action question you want to impart? Um... How is your trauma holding you back? And how are you healing your inner child? Mm. I think, you know, before people can listen to their bliss, which is how I think regardless of your beliefs is universally how God speaks through us, is through our joy and through our bliss. What can be the noise over being able to listen to that inner voice is anxiety, stress, and fear. And that is usually rooted in unaddressed trauma or in something that happened because of, you know, the way you were raised or sure. the environment that you were in or, or what have you. And that's a very much an overlooked process that I think, you know, really gets to the core of who you're going to be as a person in life. I've got a friend of mine, you asked me another one of my favorite books, is called Planet on Purpose by Brandon Peel. He's up and coming. He's a good buddy of mine in Berkeley. He's 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 one of the up and coming purpose coaches in the country. Known him for years, love the guy, super proud of him. And he and I were chatting not too long ago and I said, Brandon, here's here's my only question to the kind of work you do because he's going around and helping people across the country who I forget what the stats are like this. So don't quote me on this, but I'll, so I'll just say a significant percentage of Americans do not like the work that they do. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised by that. And, stat. and it was something like, I want to throw out the number 70%, but it was, it's a yeah. very, very, very high number. 
And I said, Brandon, it seems like, you know, the issue is when you sit down with someone and you're trying to, you know, take them through that process of what do you love, what do you get at, what do the world need, what's the world willing to pay for? If if people are just anxious and stressed and like, I don't know, you know, yeah. like they're, they're in a scarcity mentality because they got bills to pay or whatever, you cannot find clarity from a state of anxiety and fear and no because no matter what answer you come across in that state it will only perpetuate that state mm-hmm. period so that's the first step and 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 to then go to your point of journaling journaling is a very powerful way of letting go we often say like well how do i let go of my trauma you write about it and then you burn it like go yeah. go go through that go through that process i guarantee you it works wonders and then replace it with something well i well i got i got hurt in my last relationship great write about it throw it in the fire watch that go up in smoke and then write down what you want your next relationship to be like i love that or hey i i absolutely felt traumatized from my last job great paint a picture for how crazy and insane and miserable that was make it look like dante's eighth circle of hell i don't care like whatever you have to do burn it and then and then and then create a vision board for what you want it to be like next time i mean simple things like that can be so powerful and if you're crazy do it and put it online put it on your website why not (laughs) like i do (laughs) why not why not and uh last question and that's it's related but so instead of something to ask somebody a personal question to ask yourself what's a a step an action that someone can take what's a takeaway action step for people listening to this well the theme and i think of what you're about josh and your brand of renaissance life is sort of i think of one of the greatest renaissance figures of all time da vinci Mm-hmm. And this this idea that you can be a systems thinker, you can be sort of this this inductive reasoning genius that just is all over the place and, and not compartmentalize yourself towards any one category or any one particular field. That's a that's a that's a vision and an ideal for humanity that as we see increases in globalization and corporatization and division of labor becomes harder to live that lifestyle um i think that the way you can pursue that path if that's in your heart and this would be the takeaway is to is to sit down with people that you trust that you look up to that have done it themselves and to say how how can i start first looking at how i can run my life like a business and to look at all the different things you want to measure in your life not just money but also recognize that money is a vehicle towards financial freedom and that as you continue to save and as you continue to work, it allows you to take control of really what's one of the most valuable resources in the world today, and that's free time. And when you have free time, that allows you time. It's your time. As I joke that that God is a communist. He grants us all 24 hours a day, no more, no less. <laughs> and we all have a choice to, to, you know, to figure out how we want to use that and how you use that time. It's, it's amazing. And it, it's as with any sort of, you know, investing any kind of resource, you invest time wisely and, you know, compound interest will, will accrue. It's 
like the saying goes, if you were to invest a penny and it doubled every day for a month, you would end with 10.4 million. If you invest just 10, 15, 20 minutes a day towards a new venture, towards a new project, towards a new hobby, and you stick with that for months or years, you'll, you'll, you'll wake up before you know it and you'll be living your dreams. That's fantastic. Uh, before we go, what's exciting? What's going on with Startup Champs? Again, Startup Champs, just the idea that this is a agency model where I'm spending a lot of time over the next few months working on the website and business systems. So, But I'll, I'll definitely, anyone who knows me knows that when I've got something I want the world to know about, I make sure they know about it. <laughs> <laughs> and until, and, until then, I'm kind of still, you know, kind of keeping my head in the sand and staying out of the limelight with all this stuff. But anyone's welcome to come by the BDC and say hi and check it out. But the, but, but the, but the premise is to help clients get revenue and lock in sales before they incorporate or before they uh, decide to allocate more resources toward that or in other cases go out and seek investment capital or financing to then make that business a reality and go in the direction that they want to take it in. It's a much more conservative approach, but it's one that I think, especially for the Southeast, works particularly well, where we don't have the same types of investment capital levels that you expect to see in New York and Silicon Valley. And so I'm hoping that this, among so many other great efforts throughout not only Chattanooga, but the rest of the Southeast can continue to help us evolve the entrepreneurial support system here in Chattanooga so that it's regarded not just one of the best in the Southeast, but hopefully over time, one of the best in the country. Oh, that's fantastic. And the website is startupchamps.com. Mm -hmm. Who should come to you? Companies that recognize that it's not just uh, cliche, it's real. That the saying goes, 40% of Fortune 500 companies could be easily obsolete in the next mm -hmm. 10 years because we live in a world of rapid technological and societal and economic changes. And then you look at other examples of like, I mean, one of the classic examples that, that, that Peter Diamandis is notorious for is, you know, talking about like, why did Kodak go bankrupt when, you know, several, several years ahead of time, they had plenty of opportunities to adopt uh, the digital camera as a part of their business model. But they laughed it out of the room and they said, no, we're in the film business. We're in the they, we're didn't in the they invent business. that? Like they, they... They had some hands in the digital realm. Well, not to derail I, I forget, our I forget the name uh, off the top of my head, but th it was the the first point one megapixel camera was introduced to the board, and was introduced to top researchers, and they just said this just isn't a part yeah. of what we do, and and it, it's a classic example of how a lot of companies just have their blinders on and just they don't they don't know good innovation if it were to hit them in the face yeah. <laughs> and it's no different than right like when 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 you know jobs and wozniak go over to the xerox innovation center and they see the first right. like you know gui interface with the mouse i mean it's the same idea like sometimes these things are just sitting there because people just aren't in that headspace to yeah. use their imagination so that being said to answer your question companies right now Fortune 500 in particular, are sitting on trillions of dollars of cash. They don't know what to do with it. I do. I'll tell you. What you do is you call up startup champs and you <laughs> figure out and you say, hey, rather than spend millions of dollars, sometimes more, billions, doing expensive mergers and acquisitions, 
can you invest a fraction of that in, in internally validating product market fits for new revenue streams that what's called, you know, add synergy capital, meaning it adds value to other profit and loss statements within your corporate umbrella. So in the end game, meaning that you're either going to lose a little, maybe, maybe all that's completely futile. Okay. So you blew a million bucks. You know what? It Was it worth it to do it that way rather than to say, well, we're going to, we're going to do a merger and acquisition of like a hundred million dollars or $300 million or a billion dollars or, you know, whatever size you are. And then to have that not necessarily work out. So there is a big opportunity in this country for corporate innovation to reinvent itself. And I think that, and I think eventually it's going to have to happen more so than we're seeing it now because, you know, while the angel investing community is increasing, it's also getting to be much more cutthroat. And it's a hard, hard field to be in. So I hope to talk with more companies. You know, I do travel. I travel to Atlanta, San Francisco, Chicago, and so forth. And then the second is just baby boomers that have been in the industry for a couple of decades and say, I've got some money saved up. I've got credibility. I see opportunities in the marketplace. Now I just need to go about this in a methodical way because I don't want to, you know, blow through a lot of retirement money and, <laughs> and then end up having to rely on my kids to, <laughs> to keep the bills paid. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you, uh, man, thank for, you for doing this. And, um, the world appreciates spreading the message that anyone can be a Renaissance person, man or woman, just as long as, as uh, they know what steps to take and they, uh, prepare for it. Thank you. And on that note, until next time. All right, man. All right. Did you laugh? Did you cry? Did tears come out of your face? I hope you enjoyed this. Let me know. You can email me, josh at renaissancelife.com. I'm always open to feedback if you have any suggestions. Again, a great free way to support the show is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's, it's, it's important because it allows more people to find this show. So you can head over to the show notes or head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. I'd very much appreciate it. And don't forget, Considerations and Bookaholics, two new newsletters that I'm starting you can go to renaissancelife.com slash considerations or renaissancelife.com slash bookaholics and find out more information about those. They're both free. They're both monthly. They're both very thoughtful and not spammy. So, yeah. Thanks for listening. Until the next one. Bye-bye.
table beat of the week. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs>